So I am commonly what's known as a rental. <laughs> and you get what you pay for. <laughs> Good morning to you. This brings back memories for me. How many of you were here when we met in here? Yeah, a lot of you. Ten, ten and a half years, I think it was, that we met in here. Um, little history for you. Um, Carolyn and I came in 1987. I was only a teenager then. And, and after a few years, we met in our chapel, uh, what we now call our chapel. And after a while, it kind of filled up, and we started turning people away. And then we started talking about going to three services. And I knew what going to three services would do. Um, and I didn't want to do that. And I remember one time, some of our leaders, we walked over into this room, which was a gym. Uh, no big doors there. And it was a gym. And we looked around and we said, we could meet here. And everybody else said, no, we can't meet there. It's a gym. And so we started to meet here. Um, we bought some carpet. We rolled out some carpet. We bought some really cool chairs. Um, spent a whole huge amount of money. Um, there was only one door, that one right there. Everybody had to come through that door. Um, and many times we turned the seats facing that direction. Uh, those were the days when we had a big choir. We had a big choir up here and a platform, and they were, I was always afraid somebody was going to fall off the back row. Um, occasionally we'd, we'd shift it that way. In those days we had um, what we called drama musicals. You remember those? And they were, some of them were just fabulous, incredible. Um, so many wonderful memories in this place. Uh, and I just remember what Matt said last week, that the church is not the building, and the church is the people. And, and I remember being so proud of our people during those years when we met here week after week after week, where we had volunteers set up the chairs every Saturday, and every Sunday we took them all down, uh, because we had mini-league on Monday morning, remember that? Um, because we had to use this as a gym, and, and it was one of those really good times in the life of our church. God, God blessed us and did a lot of things right here in, in this room. Um, after about seven or eight years, we got kind of tired of it. Um, and people started saying things like, could we have a place where we could see and hear? Um, and then... We began praying, and God confirmed it's time to build something. I still think of that as the new building. Um, and I, what is it, 16, 17 years old now. So, well, anyway, there you go. So now it's being refurbished. Uh, so we'll get a move back over there. But I kind of like this. You know, I kind of like being able to hear you all sing, too. So, anyway, this is a, this is a great privilege for me to be here. Uh, and particularly in this particular place in the Word of God. You have your Bible? Turn to Luke chapter 23, if you would. I'm grateful today for asking me to, to teach this morning. What a privilege it is to be able to share God's Word, particularly in this place in the Word of God that is like so, in so many ways holy ground about the suffering of our Savior. It's an amazing place in the Word of God. When, when Dave asked me to preach, I said, so where... What do you want me to preach about? And he said, we're in a series called The Rejected King. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. The Rejected King. That's really what this message is about. And Luke 
really focuses in on trying to make sure that we understand that the king has been rejected. Have you thought about that lately? That the one you serve, the master, the Lord Jesus Christ was rejected? It's one of the things that increases his glory in our hearts. It teaches us again how great and amazing his grace is that he would come and and suffer and give himself for people who rejected him. You ever rejected him? Yes, yeah, yeah, you have. No, and me too. It's an amazing place in the Word of God. The, the details are intriguing. It's full of detail and history and, and heartbreak in so many ways. And when you read all four Gospels and you put them together, you realize that Luke didn't say everything, but that's not his purpose. His purpose is really just simply to point out again how Jesus was rejected by the Jews, by Pilate, by Herod, by Pilate again. What I think we have to do when we look at a passage like this is we have to wrestle with some questions about why did God want us to know this? What, what will you take away from this? Will it just be another story about Jesus? What, what will happen? Could God actually use a place like this in the Word of God to change your life in some ways? And that's what I've been praying about in these days. So let's review again where we are. We've seen Jesus has come now to Jerusalem. He's set his face to come to Jerusalem because he knows that he will suffer and die there. He enters into the city and they praise him. You remember? Hallelujah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And everybody proclaims him as king and they worship him as the Messiah. But now he has come into the home turf of the people who love to hate him and who want to see him dead, the Jewish leaders. He cleanses the temple, you remember? He teaches the people. And then his enemies line up to try to trick him, to try to deceive him. And Dave and Matt preach through these. Remember, they ask him questions trying to trick him. Is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar or not? By what authority do you do these things? You know? In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? You remember those messages? They're trying to trick him, hoping he'll say the wrong thing so that the, the rest of the people will turn against him and that he'll have, they'll have reason to accuse him before the Romans. And then he meets with his disciples on that night, and there he's betrayed. And Judas betrays him with a kiss. Then he's seized in the garden by the temple guards, remember, and he's drug away. And Matt preached last week about how he's brought first before the high priest, and there they question him. And again, they're trying to get him to say something that would, that would allow them, him, them to accuse him as worthy of death. And they say again, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And finally he says, you will see the Son of Man appear at the right hand of the Almighty God. And they say, that's enough. They call it blasphemy. And because he has claimed to be equal with God, he is worthy of death. Now they have him. They have him in their power, and now is the time to put him to death. They've tried for a long time, but now they've finally succeeded. They wanted him dead for a long time because he's called people to, to glorify God in a new kind of way, and people are, are leaving their leadership and flocking to this one that they believe is the Messiah, and they want him dead. They want him out of the way to, pro, to protect their own positions and their own power. So when he appears before the high priest, they say he's worthy of death. But the problem for the Jews was that they were a conquered people. You remember the Romans conquered them. And the Romans didn't give them the right of capital punishment. They couldn't put anybody to death. 
So what they have to do is they have to take him before Pilate, the procurator. And so that's what we do, what we see now. You have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 23. The first thing we see now is Jesus before Pilate the first time. Let's just read the first five verses. Follow along in your Bible, if you would. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. You see, the whole charge of blasphemy wouldn't mean anything at all to Pilate. Pilate could care less about the idea of blasphemy, about their gods. So what they have to do is they have to come up with different charges against him. And so the charges that they level against Jesus, he's subverting our nation. That is, he's undermining it and trying to destroy our nation. He opposes taxes being paid to Caesar, which is something he never did. You remember he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. They said he claims to be Messiah, a king. And the Romans said there are no kings but Caesar. So they thought these charges would register with Pilate. And so Pilate begins to examine Jesus. And John's gospel particularly gives a lot of details about what Pilate asked Jesus. And Luke just sort of skims over it. But at the end, Pilate says, I don't find any reason for this man to be guilty of any crime. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate, of course, didn't understand what is truth, he asked. But Pilate knows this one thing. He knows that the Jewish leaders are jealous of this man and they want to get rid of him. And he doesn't really want to go along. He doesn't want to simply put him to death because they want him to put him to death. He wants to know whether or not there's something worthy of actually executing him. And he finds absolutely no evidence for a charge against him. He says that again in verse 4. I find no basis of a charge against him. And the Jewish leaders begin to realize this is beginning to slip away. But the, so they continue to accuse him, and, then, and they say he's come all the way from Galilee down here to Judea, and, and Pilate seizes on the word Galilee, and he recognizes that Herod, Antipas, is here in Jerusalem, and Herod is the one who's, who oversees Galilee, and so he says, we'll send him to Herod. Uh, Pilate's a politician, you know. Like, if you can get rid of a problem, if you can shift it off to somebody else, that's the very best thing to do. And so what Pilate does, he said, send to Herod. And he probably sends a message, Herod, I, you know, I'll defer to your judgment on this one. This is one of your subjects, so what do you think? Look at verse 6 and 7 in your Bible. So on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Herod Antipas is one of the most degenerate rulers ever. He was fleshly, carnal, lived a degenerate kind of life. He's the one that put John the Baptist to death, you remember? So now Jesus is standing before Herod, and he's been beaten, and he's tied up like a criminal, and he's standing before Herod, and Herod has, knows about Jesus. He's heard about him before. He's heard that he's a great miracle worker, but he's never actually seen him, so he's very curious about Jesus. And finally, Jesus is standing in front of him, but he appears like just a common criminal. 
Look at your Bible, verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. A sign would be a miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teacher of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Herod's one of those people who just wants to see a miracle, you know. It would be great. Work a miracle here, and then I'll believe you, and I will set you free. And Jesus just stands there, silent, completely silent. He doesn't answer a word. And the Jewish leaders are continuing to accuse him now before Herod. And Herod's peppering him with questions, trying to get him to work a miracle. And Jesus maintains his dignified, unflinching silence. He just stands there. After a while, it frustrates Herod. He's aggravated by the whole thing. And Jesus, of course, never, ever refused a sincere seeker. If anybody really wanted to know uh, the truth, Jesus would always answer them. But this time, he stands there and he will not answer the question. He just is silent. Before this man, Herod. Finally, Herod's just unimpressed. He loses interest in Jesus. If there's no miracle, then what are we going to do? So they begin to mock Jesus again. And now they take a purple robe and they put it around Jesus because he has claimed to be a king. And now he is bound, beaten, and in a purple robe. And they lead him back to Pilate. So verse 13, we see Jesus now before Pilate again. Follow along in your Bible, if you would. Luke 23, 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him. And then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man that had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they had asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. It's fascinating to watch Pilate trying to figure out a way to release Jesus. He knows he's not guilty of anything, but he has this mob beginning to form, and he's got a serious problem developing, and he's had many problems with these Jewish leaders before, and he knows they're jealous of him. He knows that they want, they want Pilate to get rid of him, and Pilate doesn't want to go along. So he keeps examining Jesus and asking him questions, and after a while, Jesus stops answering, and he begins to be silent. It's fascinating to me that Pilate's says he's not guilty, but I'm willing to punish him. And a Roman punishment was horrible. It was scourging, whipping. 
sometimes killed people when they were whipped by the Romans. But Pilate's willing to do that, hoping that this will mollify the Jewish leaders and they'll have some compassion on Jesus and they will set him free. And so he has Jesus flogged. And then the soldiers, this is where the soldiers take the crown of thorns, do you remember? And put it on his head and beat it down into a scalp. It's an amazing picture of our master. This Lord Jesus that we worship was willing to do this for us. Pilate puts him on display, hoping that the people will have some sympathy for him. And then Mark reminds us of this custom that the Romans had, that during the Passover feast, they would release, the Romans would re release one prisoner that was held in prison. And they had this man called Barabbas. And Pilate particularly chooses him because he is a revolutionary. He is also a murderer. He's guilty of the very things that they have accused Jesus of being guilty of, but he is actually guilty. And so Pilate stands before them and says, I don't find any fault in this man. I want to set him free. And so I will release to you either... Him or Barabbas? And the people know who Barabbas is, that he is guilty. He's trying to negotiate with the people. He said to them, choose which one you want, Jesus or Barabbas? And they keep shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The Jewish leaders have two great weapons, and they begin to employ them right here. One weapon is that if you can start a riot during Passover feast, this word is going to get back to Caesar, and Pilate's rule will be in jeopardy. If you lose control over the people that you, that you oversee, your, your position is in jeopardy. So Pilate didn't want that to happen, and, and so the Jewish leaders began a riot, and they began having everybody shout, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate begins to realize he's losing control. And then they bring out the big gun, and they say... John 19:12 If you let this man go you are no friend of Caesar anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar That's about as evil as it gets isn't it And Pilate realizes he's losing control of the crowd and he realizes this accusation could get back to Rome So you remember what he does He calls for a basin of water you remember and he washes his hands in front of all the people and says, I am innocent of the blood of this man. You see to it. And they tur he turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. The Old Testament scripture says that the Passover lamb, the lamb that was sacrificed for the sin of the people, had to be examined again and again to make sure that they were, the lamb was, the words were, without blemish. I want to just remind you that this, these verses are all about Jesus being examined. He's examined by the people. He's examined by the Jewish leaders. He's examined by Pilate. And he's examined by Herod. And he's examined by Pilate again. And he is found to be without blemish. Peter will write this much later. 1 Peter 1.19 The precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was examined and found not guilty, innocent, pure even. But he was crucified, rejected. The king rejected. Think about it. Our king rejected. There's all kinds of different rejection, isn't there? I mean, you can have the rejection, the uh, rejection's kind, Pilate's kind of rejection was 
well, I'm just not all that interested, you know, and I'm not willing to give up my position or power. I'm not going to jeopardize any of that, so I'm willing to go along with the crowd, whatever I have to do, uh, in order to be able to maintain my position. Herod's rejection was a different kind of rejection. It was just curiosity, you know. And if you work a miracle for me, then I'll be impressed with you. But if you won't do what I want you to do, then I too reject you. The Jewish leaders, their rejection was really all about their own position, their own power. They knew they were in jeopardy if this man continued to do what he was doing. They knew he worked miracles. Many of them have witnessed it with their own eyes. And they know that they had to put him to death in order to maintain their position and their power and the place where they received so much money. They're just unwilling to give up their place at the top. And so they reject him. And he is... Amazing. Occasionally I meet a Christian who says, they don't say it in so many words, but, but the message really is, you, you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. Does it get boring? Do you get tired of Jesus after a while? Are you, are you at that place now where, I mean, you would honestly say my Christian life, I mean, Jesus is... Not that fascinating. I mean, you say he's amazing, but I don't... Are you there today? I want to say to you that I've known him for a while. And with every day that passes, he gets more incredible. The more time you spend seeking him out, the more times you read things like this, the more time you ponder than pray, the more time you walk with him and you see what he's done, the more amazing he gets. And someday, I'm going to see his face. He is incredible. The rejected king. I don't reject him. Do I? Do you reject him? Do we reject him? Do, do I? It's quite easy, particularly in church, to say, I don't reject him. I mean, I wouldn't say it here, right? But we do, don't we? In our own ways, we reject him. Every single time we refuse him, every time we neglect, every time we turn away, every time we ponder and postpone something he's said for a little longer, every time we just simply refuse to recognize that he is a king and I am his subject, I reject him again. Actually, rejection comes quite easy for us. There's a sin thing, right? You know it. This is where you nod your heads, right? This thing called flesh, this thing that says, I want to, I want to rule my own life. I, and the whole idea of a king is, is foreign to us. We're, we're not into this king thing. The king and queen, you know, just like the whole idea of a sovereign ruler, the one who is in charge of everything, who, who makes all the decisions and, and issues the commands and everybody submits. This is foreign to us. We just, we're just not familiar with this. So I have to ask you, do you have a king? Really? A king? A king. Not just somebody you believe in. Not just somebody you know died so that you could be forgiven and go to heaven, but a king. Do you have a king? Isn't that who he is? Isn't that who he is? Of course it is. And he is rejected. The common confession of the Christian church for 2,000 years has been these four simple words in English. Jesus Christ 
is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. The word Lord means master, sovereign, ruler, in charge, king. Jesus Christ is Lord. He rules. He rules all of life. He, the design is that his people would submit to him and that we would learn from his example that he not only rules our life, but he also sets an example for us. And one of the examples that he sets for us is if I'm rejected, he said, then guess what's going to happen to you? Which causes us another challenge from a place in the Word of God like this. Here's the question for me. Am I willing to be rejected like he was rejected? Are you? Well, we're not really sort of aware of that so much in our life, I don't think. Maybe it's not such a common experience. For some of, some of you, would say, oh, yes, it is. Am I willing to be rejected like my king was rejected? They lied about him. Jesus said, the evil one is a liar and the father of lies. The disciples of Jesus should not be surprised by rejection. But if you're like me, you often are. Because we declare a king and a kingdom. We talk about that a lot, a king and a kingdom. But we still wrestle with trying to figure out what does that mean to us? What, what does it look like? How, how does it feel? What does it mean in terms of my daily life? And if we think we can sort of win over the world to the idea of a king, we're deceived. Jesus tells us things like this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Let's spend a little time getting ready to take the Lord's Supper. I want to excuse the ushers now to prepare for serving us the bread and the cup. And I want to ask you to continue to focus, would you? Sometimes this is the time when everybody folds up their Bible and their mind and gets ready to go. What I want to do is I want to tell you about something that's happened in my life in the recent years. It's been one of the greatest privileges of my life to go overseas and to train and encourage and equip pastors, particularly in Africa and Asia. And, I, and they are they're needy people. The places we go, they have very little, sometimes no training whatsoever, and they, and they shepherd churches, and they don't have theological training. They don't know how to shepherd. They don't know how to teach the Bible. I mean, there's so many things that they don't know. Almost always they're poor. Uh, many times they're farmers, and they're trying to shepherd a flock of people. They have many, many needs, and that's why we go. But I want to say to you, every single time I go, I come back richer. They have taught me some things that I so needed to be taught. Things like this. Jesus is our greatest treasure. They so love the Master. It's just fascinating to me how deep their love for the Master is when they don't have the doctrinal understanding that I have. When they don't know the Bible like I know the Bible, but they love Him in a powerful, powerful way. 
come ahead whenever you're ready. And when you receive the bread and the cup, just take it and hold it and keep listening if you would. Another thing that I've learned is that from them is that joy is not connected to comfort or possessions. Let me say that again. Joy is not com- connected to comfort or possessions. That happiness and stuff is not connected. I don't know about you, but I never knew that very well because I was raised in America. And we're constantly bombarded with the idea that if you have enough security and if your health is good and you're basically comfortable and you've got stuff, then you're going to be happy. And every one of us have realized that that's not true, haven't we? Haven't we? Oh, yes. But we still fall prey to it, don't we? I mean, they're really good at selling this one to us. I've learned that from them. Because they have so little and they have such amazing joy. And here's the one that is so convicting to me that I learned again and again, and I'm off to Nepal in a few weeks, and I'm going to see it again. And, and that's the, thing, the lesson that I've learned from them, that it is normal for disciples of Jesus to be persecuted and rejected. Let me say that again. It is normal for disciples of Jesus Christ to be rejected and persecuted. Now, here's the problem that I have is I was raised in America and we, we pretty much tolerate a lot. And so the whole persecution, rejection thing for us is, is not so strong and vivid and very few of us are in danger of being beaten or losing our jobs or having everything taken away or being killed or a myriad of other things. But for these people, it's a normal experience. They just, they, and they don't think they're, any, they're anything super about it. They don't, they don't pat themselves on the back and say, we get this, you don't. They don't know that we don't get it. They just think it's normal that if you're following Jesus, you're going to get whacked. The world is going to reject you. And why? Because Jesus was rejected. And they just know by their own personal experience that when you follow Jesus, you will be rejected. They're not surprised to hear Jesus say things like this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Rejection by the world is their new normal. And they think we really get this. Do you? That now that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it is normal for the world to reject you and to be persecuted. Now, I'm not saying you seek persecution. And by the way, just a reminder here that this was because of me, Jesus said, not because you're weird, not because of your political views, not because you're irritating or rude or any of those kind of things, but because of me, because of me, Jesus said, you will be opposed because I serve King Jesus, because I love him, because I have a kingdom, because I accept rejection without retaliation, because I give myself to his kingdom. I've learned that my identity in Christ is not confirmed by how easy my life is. I used to think it was. I've been blessed. And I have been. Oh, amazingly blessed. 
But my identity in Christ is not because of how easy my life is. It's because of his amazing grace that he still received me after I rejected him in so many ways. And I still do in some ways. Jesus told us that rejection confirms that we belong to the people of God. You stand with the prophets of God when you are rejected because of me. And by the way, your reward in heaven is great when you are persecuted. So you have the bread and the cup. Oh, I need one too. When one of your ushers bring me one. Forget the preacher. Oh, you're going Oh, you are a brother. Thank you. I like you a lot. You remember, now we need to bring Dave one. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. <laughs> you remember seeing some signs some time ago where people would hold up a sign that said, Not my president? Remember this? Now, don't get too lost in this political illustration or you'll never get back to Jesus. Um, <laughs> not my president. I didn't vote for him. He doesn't have my values, right? I don't like his programs, his policies, and not my president. I don't claim him. You can have, and other people say, well, he is president, like it or not. My question for you is, would you hold up a sign that said, not my king? Not my king. I didn't vote for him. I don't like his program. I don't like his lifestyle. I don't like what he demands of me. I, I didn't vote for this Jesus. I... Don't want to submit to his rule in my life. Not my king. Or, would you hold up a sign that says, my king? Would you? My king. I'm trying now in my life, in this phase of my life, to receive him again and again as king. I'm trying to submit my life in every way to him as my king. He is my king. The more I know about him, the more I love him and care about him, the more I see what he has done for me. What would you say? Which sign would you hold up? There are some people, of course, who we take this piece of bread and they say, he never came. He never came in a body. God did not become flesh. That's crazy. I don't believe that. I reject that idea that God, somehow God, would come into this world as a baby and then a boy and then a teenager and then a young man and live a life and work miracles and then die on a cross and that my sin could be forgiven by what he did 2,000 years ago. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. What about you? You see, this, this whole thing about the Lord's Supper becomes meaningless unless you choose again to believe. Unless you decide one more time, He is my King. Did my King have flesh? Did my King become a sin bearer for me? Did my King die on a cross? So, did He? Did He? Really? You, you believe that? Do you? Okay, to eat the bread then. Then there's the cup. It's amazing how deep his love is for us. 
Excuse me, I'm going to have to get a little drink there. I'm getting over that cold. I don't think you're supposed to do that in between the bread and the cup, drink water. <laughs> don't, don't tell anybody I did that, okay? <laughs> Sometimes my mind just goes, woo, you know, anyway. <laughs> so, now the cup, Jesus said, this is my blood given for you. Did your king have blood? And did he give it for you? Do you believe it? Really? Let's drink it together. Let's pray together. So, Father, we give you praise one more time that you so loved the world that you would give your one and only Son that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. Now as we've tried to ponder, consider again the king rejected for us. Help us, Father, as we leave this place to lift him up in our own hearts and our own minds, to see him again as great and wonderful, to have his grace touch our lives one more time. Father, I pray that you do only what do what only you can do, that the Spirit of God would somehow impress upon us again such magnificent grace and mercy that not only did you send him, but he was willing to come. And not only was he willing to come, he was willing to be rejected so that it could be seen as your amazing grace. Father, I pray that it would impress us some that we would remember it and this week when the time comes to choose again do I have a king I pray that you would find us obedient submissive and joyfully following the king in our life for the praise of your glory we say these things and also for our joy amen amen, amen.